Welcome to the Reformed Media Review. My name is Camden Busey, and I'm here with Jared Oliphant. He's Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Today we're going to be speaking about a recent book titled Molinism, The Contemporary Debate. It's edited by Ken Perzik. Jared, tell us about this volume. Yeah, thanks, Camden. This is a uh, very challenging book. It's It was a lot of fun to read uh, through, and... Um, just a note from the beginning here, I, I won't have time to get into a, a broad evaluation of Molinism as a whole, so um, the listener should not really expect like a full treatment of all the ins and outs of Molinism from a reform perspective. Um, that just isn't really, you know, free will um, considerations, libertarian free will, those kinds of things, and different conceptions of God's providence. But I will have a couple brief uh, concluding thoughts at the end. So this review will be a little lopsided in one sense because I can't assume uh, detailed familiarity with Molinism from the get-go, um, mm-hmm. and, and rightly so. They're just Not everybody in the Reformed world is up to speed on all the ins and outs of Molinism, and there, and there are quite a few. We should um, say, but, just to start, I suppose, yeah. that Molinism gets its name from uh, a Spanish Jesuit of the 16th century, Louis de Molina. Yeah. But I'll then it, it's, if you've ever heard of the idea of middle knowledge, these are, these are right. related. Right. Yeah. And so following up on what I was saying what I was saying previously, the mm-hmm. book assumes a lot of knowledge already on that topic. Um and even a lot of knowledge on that topic and, and its implications. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna try to hit the most important details of the last like forty years or so, um, just the highlights. Uh and I also want to thank uh, James Anderson. He's the one that recommended this book. So I wouldn't have got this without his recommendation. And, and it was a it was a great wreck too. Mm. So I thought um, by introducing this topic, I would actually begin by looking at a biblical passage that's cited um, pretty frequently in the literature out there on this topic, and it's from 1 Samuel 23, uh, verses 7 to 13 or so, and I'll start with verse 7. If you'll just bear with me, I'll, I'll read the verses. It says, Now it was told Saul that David had come to Cala, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Cala to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Cala to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Cala surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Cala surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. And this is, this is kind of the key part. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Cala, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Cala, he gave up the expedition. So we have two things going on here. The fact of the matter, what actually happened is that David did not remain in Cala, but he fled. So how did God know what did not happen but would have happened if David had stayed in Cala? And that's the question 
uh, generally that Louis de Molina posed and answered in part four of his work called the Concordia. Now, to give you a little bit of um, historical perspective, Molina's dates are 1535 to 1600. He was a Catholic scholastic Jesuit in the Counter-Reformation generation after Luther and Mm, Calvin. Great combination. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right. Um, And this whole discussion was going on within um, Catholic, the the Catholic tradition. This This was a discussion between the Jesuits and the Dominican order among other people. So it's not just Catholics and Protestants, it's it's within the Catholic tradition as well. And Molina's influence reached even the Westminster Assembly um, a few decades afterwards. Mm-hmm. We see in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, in the first two sections, uh, the Westminster divines, not surprisingly, crafted the answers uh, that they gave to eliminate any allowance of Arminianism and Molinism. So they are already watching out for Molinism. And again, if you just bear with me, you'll, you'll see as I read the, the first two sections um, mm-hmm. where this comes in. Uh, section one says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And then in the second section, it kind of elaborates on that. It says, Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. That's so that both phrase, the, um, you have both there the Arminian and the middle knowledge position represented. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so both are covered. So that you, you recognize the phrase, as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. That's explicitly and intentionally leaving out Molinism. Um, so then we, we also see later Reformed thinkers like Bavink, Warfield, Hodge, Burkhoff, even Van Til mentions uh, Molina at one point. So um, there, there were some, some, there was some commentary later on, clearly, and and also keep in mind that that was all before Molina was translated into English, which again I'll get into. But what's more interesting and relevant for our purposes here is how and why Molinism saw a revival and really an explosion in philosophy of religion in the latter half of the 20th century to the present. Um, and that that whole revival is really one reason that the book exists in the first place. So, a little bit more context. That's kind of the theological context. Um, and like I said, the, the book is incredibly complex because it, it has so many different disciplines really packed into it. It's got theology packed into it, logic, philosophy of religion, philosophy as a whole, metaphysics. Um, so, just uh, now that some of the theological issues are are described generally – I don't want to get into the full history of logic at this point, partially because I'm not qualified to do that. But um, we should note in this discussion that leading up to the Molinism revival, again in the 20th century, there were significant developments in modal logic starting in the 20th century. And modal logic deals not just with basic truth, bare truth, like an ordinary propositional logic, but as the name suggests, um, modes of truth. So, our, for our purposes, those modes are going to be possibility and necessity. And the big names in the mid-20th century while this was going on were C.I. Lewis, not C.S. Lewis, but C.I. Lewis, 
who was one of the first uh, logicians to pioneer modal systems around 1918 and 1932. Uh, Ruth Barkan is another name that you might be familiar with if you're into logic at all. She was uh, Ruth Barkan Marcus, I think, later on when she was married. But um, she started doing work around the 1940s and, and onward. Hmm. And then one of the huge names is Saul Kripke, um, oh, yeah. who has a, a system of modal semantics named after him. And he published a, this landmark work called Naming a Necessity in 1970. Um, and just a small note, when we interviewed Vern Poythers, I think we asked him about uh, his experience with Saul Kripke. Kripke. I, don't, I think he, he might not have been a student, but um, he was there around the same time. So that's, uh, we'll have to get Vern back on and, and ask him about some of his experiences. Mm. But all this is leading up to the uh, the Molinism revivals kick off really around like 1974 with all these innovations that were happening within modal logic. The standard models talked about possibility using a, a particular language and semantics of possible worlds, and, and some of you are definitely familiar with that kind of language. And just generally, a possible world isn't a physical world like a planet, but it's it's more of an abstract idea. It's um, defined as something like a maximal state of affairs. Mm. So the actual world is a possible world, and that includes everything that has ever happened and will ever happen. If you want to learn more about the history of modal logic, there's a, a paper um, by Robert Goldblatt called Mathematical Modal Logic, A View of Its Evolution. You can just Google it and the PDF's there. Mm. So there's possibility, necessity, possible worlds. People understood that this actual world is not the only possible world. Um, in other example, words, other things could have happened. Exactly. It could, have, it could have happened some other way. Yeah, we yeah. could have begun this episode a few minutes later, a few mm-hmm. minutes earlier, or I could have had a blue shirt on rather than a gray shirt, etc. Right. There, there are little things going on that could have ended up a different way. Um, so those those other things happening a different way are in other possible worlds. Mm-hmm. So in, in 1973, uh, uh, another Lewis, David Lewis, uh, published a book called Counterfactuals. Counterfactuals, as you can probably guess by the name, are conditional sa- statements like, um, if it had rained yesterday, I would not have gone running. Uh, that statement involves a, a choice on my part, and Molinus would say a libertarian free will choice on my part and we can get into that at some other point but um it's not like other statements like um if i dropped this coffee coffee mug that i'm holding on the floor it would break and that kind of statement reflects a natural law um or for example if i met an unmarried man today i would have met a bachelor that's just Mm -hmm. a, a logical truth that that follows a logical law so around this time this is where things really kick in yeah, 1973, David Lewis's Counterfactuals. In 1974, Alvin Plantinga published a very groundbreaking work called The Nature of Necessity. Mm. And that combined all the advances that were going on in those different fields. Um, they, it combined uh, modal logic, possible worlds, counterfactuals, and it applied them to theological topics like um, God in general. It's a, it's a theistic book. Um, and it it applied it to specifics like God as a necessary being. Uh, it attempted to answer atheist objections to God involving the problem of evil. And that's where planning a developed his famous free will defense, which argued that the combination of God's existence and the presence of evil were not logically contradictory. That had been the case for 
centuries, really. That um, but we still hear that have, argument frequently. Yeah, it's still exactly. It still mm-hmm. goes on. Um, really, in, in popular arguments, that's one of the most common. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, why am I going into all this detail um, with all these seemingly external things? One of the groundbreaking elements of planning as nature of necessity was how he argued for the compatibility of God's existence and evil in the world. Um, The way he argued sparked a resurgence of philosophy of religion, and um, because of the way he argued, it linked it tightly to a Molinist account of free will and God's providence. How did he do that? It's um, basically based on the specifics of planning his argument. Planning argued that it is possible that God could not have created, or didn't have the ability to create a universe containing moral good, but no moral evil. He needed um, a couple things to, to accomplish this in his argument. One, that it's possible that God knows all counterfactuals, and two, that humans have libertarian free will. They can, they can um, do one or the other if given a, a, a choice. So, he distinguishes between necessary propositions that God knows uh, because he's omniscient, but doesn't have control over, Planinga says, since they're just simply true. Like, two plus two equals four. Planinga says that's just simply true. God can't make um, two plus two equal five or two plus two equal a pineapple or something. That just doesn't make any sense. Um, So, that's something that God kind of finds himself um, with. Uh, and and that's very controversial. And again, that's that's a subject for another topic. I think there's <laughs> right, a lot to right. work with there. Um, so that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, there are contingent propositions that God can actualize. So if we are f- truly free to either perform an action or refrain from that action, then God cannot cause us to do either one of those things. Um, planning us says otherwise, they wouldn't be our free actions. So, how do you square those things together? If you're a classical theist, you want to maintain omnipotence, which is a classical attribute, but you, if you're planning, I want to uphold libertarian freedom. So, planning supposes that God knows what a person would do in certain situations. Those are counterfactuals again. And he supposes that it's possible that created persons suffer from Transworld depravity, he calls it, uh, meaning that it's part of the creature's essence that they're depraved, so that there's no possible world where they're not depraved. It's, it's just part of humanity. So, I'm leaving out a ton of details here, believe it or not, I, I actually am, but the conclusion that he reaches is that it is possible that God was not able to create a world that contains both free creatures in the libertarian sense and no moral evil. Um, that that world is not possible for God to create. So if there's moral evil, which there is, then it could be because it's just the price that we pay for free will. And that's why, partially why it's called the free will defense. Mm, right. So what's important here, uh, especially in the context of the book and, and every, all the essays that are tackling particularly the problem of evil but also counterfactuals, um, is the use of counterfactuals in this argument, planning a developed Molin- Molinism more or less independently, um, he didn't really know that he was <laughs> he was stating a, a Molinistic argument there. A, a couple other Catholic uh, philosophers actually had to to tell him, um, but he used the tools of modal logic, uh, possible worlds, and counterfactuals to develop it. To so develop he really this. kind of updated it uh, without knowing that's what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. Or cast I mean, it, it, it into was... kind of the vocabulary of a new form of philosophy that did not exactly. exist when when Molina did his work. 
Yeah, exactly right. And in one sense, it's it's pretty remarkable that he just kind of came up with some you know major doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, so anyway, aside from planning as a version of of that argument, um, maybe we can talk just again briefly on on what is Molinism. So jumping back to the 16th century, Molina drew from Thomas's theological ca- categories of God's necessary or natural knowledge by virtue of his being on the one hand, and then God's free knowledge of things and events he freely decreed would in fact happen. Those are the two uh, really before Molina classical Thomistic, but also just generally scholastic and, and in some Protestant cir- circles, the categories that, that um, we deal with or, or they dealt with in, in theology proper. So you have natural knowledge, sometimes called necessary knowledge, and then free knowledge. On the other hand, God's natural knowledge includes things like all the infinite amount of possibilities in, in, in today's jargon, possible worlds that under uh, this view God chooses from in order to create the actual world. It also includes necessary truths like we said 2 plus 2 equals 4 and um, say the, the proposition no one is taller than they actually are. Again, another logical truth that's just simply true by virtue of what it is. <laughs> so these are things that God, according to Molina and Planning and others, didn't create. They just are, and also according to Thomas. Under the Thomist classical model, uh, as we said before, God uses his knowledge of all possibilities to choose the best possible world to actualize. That language of best possible world comes from Leibniz and is developed further in philosophy. And then God freely wills or decrees the actual world based on his necessary knowledge. Um, and then, of course, he has knowledge of it, and that's his free knowledge. So, um, and as a side note, it's important to understand that these like steps or phases of God's knowledge um, are acknowledged by all really as not temporal moments. So, it's not as right. if God is having discursive knowledge here in step one and step two, but these are logical priorities that people are talking about. Mm-hmm. So, going back to our biblical passage, what about situations like the one we looked at in 1 Samuel 23, the, the counterfactual situations? Under Molinism, God knew by virtue of his necessary knowledge each possibility related to Saul and David and the town of Cala and anything else that possibly could happen, all the different scenarios in, in that um, state of affairs. He also knew his free decree that David would ask God what Saul would do and that God's answer would prompt him to flee Cala and that Saul would then give up the expedition to find David. So, under Molinism, Saul can either freely come down and harm David, or he can refrain. And in order, in order to be free, God cannot cause Saul to do either. Mm-hmm. But Molina wanted to preserve an orthodox, kind of classical understanding of God's providence, too, um, on the one hand. So, you have free will and God's providence kind of at odds here, and Molina wants to solve that problem. So, he says that before God decrees anything— He knows counterfactuals like uh, if Saul meets David at Cala on his expedition, he will freely go down and harm him. Um, He can kind of uh, orchestrate all the events infinitely such that Saul will accomplish freely. If Saul of his own accord will do the things that that God wants to decree him to do. That's right. And so it's a middle way, hence the middle knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Kind it's a middle way. It's it's knowledge that is between the necessary natural knowledge right. and then God's free knowledge. But it's knowledge. not the Calvinist understanding of providence uh, at all. No, no. Um, <laughs> but and, neither is it. Ni- neither is it really Arminian. At least fully Arminian. 
No, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of scholarship on um, in a few papers that that I have yet to read on whether Arminius was a full blown Molinist. Um, <laughs> I I really need to get into a few of those papers. Um, I, I'm just not familiar right. as much with the 16th and 17th century developments from those two. So, okay, let's get out of that century. Um, we're going to jump to the the 80s, the 1980s. In Here we go. 19- yeah, and a little. We need, more we need to play and, some Van Halen jump if we're going to make that jump. I think. That, <laughs> well, it's it's eighty eight, so that would have been what, four, four years, years later. Something. Yeah. If my if my uh, right, we need your brother here to to, to tell us. I know what the was rock critic eighty eight. Yeah. yeah, I don't know, um, but it's nineteen eighty eight, and um, a professor by the name of Alfred Ferdoso published uh, another landmark um, work. It was a translation and commentary of Molina's part four of the Concordia. It had not been translated into English before then. So this opened Molina's work and his ideas to the broader English-speaking world. It summarized Molina's thoughts on providence and free will. And um, in, in this book, Fredoso offered both like a positive account of Molina, and he also defended against um, some some figures that had already been going on since uh, really planning and started talking about it in in the mid seventies. So there were a number of scholarly articles that followed that. There was still a whole lot of discussion going on, but another quick high point for Molinism came about ten years later, exactly ten years later, in nineteen ninety eight. That's when I graduated high school, Me by too. the way. So I know a lot of songs from that that era. Me too. But um. In 1998, Thomas Flint's book called Divine Providence, The Molinist Account came out. And in in that book, he summarized in a lot of detail, great detail, uh, Molinistic thought up to that point, both um, originally with Molina and um, really more how how it developed since planning his time and and abstractly what was going on. So this is – Flint's work, this book, is one of the most cited works in Molinist circles because it's just so thorough and the complexity of Flint's arguments are, are very impressive and there's, there's a lot of defense of it that people comment on later. Hmm. Um, just a side note, what's interesting about Fredoso and Flint's works uh, is their inclusion of scripture and theology into part of what makes middle knowledge a valid topic. They're, um, Flint and Fredoso are both Catholic philosophers of religion who teach at Notre Dame now. And um, they have, a, I would say, you know, all the qualifications in order, definitely an appreciation for theology and scripture properly understood in a Roman Catholic way. So I'm, I'm not defending a, a you know, robust view of Roman Catholic theology, but in philosophical circles, um, you, you can't really assume that. So just to put it into context there, in the broad philosophical circles, they're somewhat on the conservative side, generally speaking. Right. It's interesting. You change disciplines like that, and you, you will find yourself closer to Catholics in certain things than you would maybe in other disciplines. Uh, yeah, you know, on, right. On Absolutely. just straight-up systematics, for instance. Yeah. You, you won't find a whole lot of uh, Catholic um, companions <laughs> in, in yeah. studies. You'll find yourself at odds with them a lot more often than you will in some branches of philosophy. Right, right. So I'm describing a field that has, um, it's just kind of wrought with atheism. So mm-hmm. when someone comes along and has some appreciation for theology and scripture, that's um, something that at least on, a, on some level we have in common. Mm-hmm. All right, so two more quick points, I promise, before we get into the book itself. Um, if you read Flint's book, Divine Providence, you'll notice uh, two major chapters. One is a reply to William Hasker and um, a chapter on the grounding objection to Molinism, those two chapters. Uh, 
for those who don't know, William Hasker is an open theist philosopher, and uh, he's also one of Molinism's most persistent, frequent critics. Uh, it was interesting to read some of Hasker's work on the topic in light of where we all come from, uh, you know, in Reformed theology on the theological spectrum, um, because it's it, it's kind of a tricky thing because. Um, while I'm not a Molinist, I'm clearly not an open theist either. Um, <laughs> Hasker, I find myself going, okay, Hasker, that's actually like a, a good point. Um, and then have to remember that he's an open theist, but it doesn't take away from the point at all. So there's, there's a lot going on when you read this kind of thing and you have to qualify a whole, a whole lot of concepts. Um, but as you might expect, Hasker's critiques, uh, they focus on defending libertarian free will, since he's an open theist, and uh, he, he builds arguments that um, try to demonstrate how Molinism actually conflicts with libertarian tr- free will, even though um, Molinists affirm libertarian free will, but Hasker says that's inconsistent. And one more um, point, the grounding objection, uh, which comes up in Flint's book and uh, has been an objection really since um, Planning offered his defense in the, in the mid-70s, um, that grounding objection is used by critics of uh, various theological persuasions, not just open theists, but many people who are looking at Molinism um, state what's a grounding objection. In a nutshell, a grounding objection asks why it's the case or how it's the case that counterfactuals of freedom are either true or false, that they just are, which is the claim that Molinism says, that these just like um, possibilities and necessities um, are just the case, that if God is omnipotent, um, he's just going to know what you would do in certain certain situations. The grounding objection says eh, there's got to be reasons for that, and Molinism, because it doesn't give and give any, there's a problem there. All this, what I've just described, the history of it, the the modal logic aspects, the possible worlds, everything that was going on theologically, all that sets up the context for the current book that we're talking about, Molinism, the contemporary debate. Um, just. Uh, a little bit on the contributors. Uh, they include a lot of uh, various, um, I'd say, theological traditions or philosophical traditions. Uh, Thomas Flint actually contributes to this, um, and so does William Hasker. And it's um, it, it also includes William Lane Craig, uh, Dean Zimmerman from Rutgers, uh, Hugh McCann from Texas A&M, Trenton Merricks of University of Virginia, and many others. Those are just some of the names that um, if you're familiar with the, the Molinism discussions, you may have seen with previous articles. As you said, Camden, it's edited by Ken Persick, who teaches mm-hmm. at Victoria University in Wellington, Australia. Oh. And uh, he contributes to the volume as well. And um, in fact, a lot of the essays, many of the essays are from a conference on Molinism that was held at Victoria University in 2008. And these are collected uh, here and published by Oxford University Press. So That's right. Yeah. Um, late 2011. I mean, some volumes of the book look like they're marked 2012, but um, that it's fairly recent. Yeah, that's right. Pa- definitely past five years um, before that. So um, I'm not going to summarize every contribution uh, in the book, partially because that would be dry and partially because um, each essay in this can get extremely complex and technical. There's a lot of um, modal logic in this, as you would expect. So it's it's a lot of symbols. Um, but just some, just a few highlights that I could mention. Um, the editor Ken Persick's introduction to the book is a very helpful overview on where the Molinist discussion currently stands. He does a, a great job 
uh, as kind of a referee overseeing all this and, and summarizing it in the beginning. So I thought he was just an, an excellent choice for editor um, and, and has a very valuable introduction there uh, for even people who want to just get up to speed. If you don't read the rest of the volume, it's, it's a helpful summary. Mm. Another aspect, it was very interesting to see uh, an updated, semi-recent interaction between uh, William Hasker and Thomas Flint. They have kind of positioned themselves as arch-rivals in some sense over the years on this topic. And they're friendly enough, but um, it's been interesting to read the articles from the 80s and the 90s and then now. Kind of like uh, Bruce McCormick and Paul Molnar, you know, the yeah, Bardian... I mean, Bardian battles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a lot of point counterpoint, and um, and it, in a general sense, I kind of get the feeling that uh, while counterfactuals, in the Molinist sense, uh, enjoyed some novelty and advances in thoughts uh, since the 1970s, since everything was kind of new and people were just discovering it, the discussion now has become just so technical, and um, at, at sometimes almost um, pedantically technical, you could say. Uh, it involves what seems like just an eternal string of point-counterpoints um, that, practically speaking, I, I think a lot of people are or might be losing patience with Molinism's attempts at, an, at answering uh, these grounding objections. That's just, I, I certainly don't consider myself an expert in the topic, but... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that and, and let the reader decide whether that's the case or not. But another highlight, and I'm kind of elaborating on the point that I just made, Dean Zimmerman's reply to William Lane Craig's critique of Zimmerman's paper. Zimmerman wrote Dean Zimmerman wrote a paper called Yet Another Anti-Molinist Argument. And you can just see from the title there, Yet Another Anti-Molinist Argument, that um, the stamina of wading through the details is, you know, it might be waning. People are getting a little tired of the, the back and forth and, and not a whole lot of advancement in the discussion. Um, but Zimmerman's article was, I thought, just a, a standout piece. Um, Zimmerman is actually a, another proponent of uh, open theism, so he's coming at it from that angle. Uh, but as far as... Um, just philosophical ability, even literary style and clarity. I think that was just a, a top, top-notch uh, paper. Uh, one other point, uh, generally, Hasker's writing, you'll find, is, is always entertaining. He's, um, I, would, I would call him lively <laughs> in some places, even though, again, it can get a little bit technical. But um, he does display some real philosophical ability. So um, his essays are usually worth a read. And like I said, the, uh, the soap opera style of, of Hasker and Flint is kind of entertaining even at, at that level. <laughs> so... Um, like I said at the beginning of, the, of this review, I know my comments here are light on summary. Um, I didn't want to just kind of rehash the book and, and what it's about because you can either read uh, you know a few things online about that or um, get the book and then there will be no new information. But I wanted to just introduce the, the, introduce the topic in general um, for the listener and just a little bit about the book and, and why it's important. Um, and then well, it's helpful finally, to have a background on the debates, and then people that get into it will know whether or not to, they want to pursue it. They might actually have to read several other books before they're ready to read this one. But the people that are already well-versed and familiar with the arguments um, will be ready upon your recommendation to pick the book up. I think that would work out well. 
Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm I'm um, I'm aware that there is a very very tiny percentage of potential listeners who are aware of the ins and outs of this debate, and then there's there's um, a broad group of listeners who are um, very competent to comment on it, but just haven't read all the literature. So I'm trying to walk that balance between not assuming too much, but also knowing that there are a lot of people interested in obviously the free will and providence and, and those kinds of debates, um, especially in Arminian circles. So, um, I guess, you know, again, quickly, what can we say about this from a reform perspective? It was interesting to read Paul Helm's review of this book in Thamilios. Uh, he actually doesn't really engage much with the specific content of the book either. Uh, he kind of hovers over it and gives a general overview of his thoughts on the topic. And um, what's interesting about that review is uh, I might have even detected some kind of – bitterness is too strong a word, but but something like that um, because he notes and, and rightly notes that there's an exclusion of reformed philosophers from these debates. Um, I, I think that's, that's pretty clear. Uh, a more – Thorough review, thorough review of this title can be found at apologetics315.com. If you search um, Molinism, the contemporary debate, you'll find it there. And um, that I, I forget who wrote that, so my apologies. But um, you'll you'll find a chapter by chapter uh, breakdown there. So there's a lot of detail if you want that, and you're not getting it from this audio review, which in one sense you're not. But um, I think Helm is right in one sense that there's a notable absence of reform philosophers. Uh, from this discussion, but also to be fair, there's there's a notable absence of reform philosophers. Period. So, um, for what it's worth, I think one way forward would be for those who are competent in both reform theology and some of the technical philosophical details to um, demonstrate competency in in both the um, I'd say in both at the technical level. Uh, philosophical level that um, rivals this book, and then to apply uh, his or her reformed theology to this discussion. Um, I'd love to see that happen, that someone comes along and, again, demonstrates uh, you know top-tier philosophy and then applies it to solid, robust, reform, rigorous theology as well. So, Final thought, overall, um, this book is about $63 on Amazon. Um, I think it's a must-have for anyone wanting to engage the ongoing work on Molinism in philosophy of religion, which is a heated discussion. It's an ongoing discussion. Um, it's a very complex and technical discussion. Um, so it's, this isn't a book for beginners on the topic, no, but no, it's, it's a must-have for the topic as a whole. Right. I think the essays are very high caliber, and um, there's, there's also a very, very helpful bibliography in the back if you just want to check out what should I be reading. It's, it's, it's so thorough. So Overall, I highly commend this book. This was an excellent title. Um, again, with all the assumed theological qualifications we might get into at another time in like maybe a, a Crisis Center episode or something, that's not my, my point here. I just wanted to point you to a title and um, give some thoughts on it. Certainly. So I think the people that know this book is for them know this book is for them. And what type right. of logic that is, you can you can read the book and decide. But uh, the book available here, uh, it's published by Oxford University Press. Uh, 2011, titled Molinism, the Contemporary Debate, edited by Ken Persick, as Jared mentioned. It's about $63, $64 street value on Amazon. You have the power to choose whether or not you want to buy it or not. Uh, That book review that Jared mentioned was a review on apologetics315.com. A link to that is in the 
will be in the episode description. It was a review by a, uh, a student named Justin Mooney, M-O-O-N-E-Y. So if you'd like to read that, you can click the link and follow along. Thanks so much for the review, Jared. This has been the Reformed Media Review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.